frankly, I think the other motivation here and the one that's more militarily useful for India and what I think is actually driving a lot of the development of this kind of technology, which is the base technology being direct ascent, hit to kill kinetic interceptors, is their application in ballistic missile defense. This is Nukes of Hazard, the podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. Since we just put out the last main podcast episode I'll produce here, we figured we might as well have a bonus podcast, too. This one will be a bit more in the weeds than our other podcast episodes, but it's on a very interesting topic. So at the end of March, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced that India had successfully shot down one of its own satellites with an anti-satellite weapon, also known as an ASAT, A-S-A-T. It was codenamed Mission Shakti, and the test was a big deal for a number of reasons. First, it's just a really difficult thing to do. Satellites move really, really quickly in orbit, and kinetically intercepting a satellite, basically slamming a missile into it, takes a lot of precision. Before this, only the United States, Russia, and China were known to have this type of technology. Prime Minister Modi made his excitement for the test very clear, tweeting, Hashtag Mission Shakti is special for two reasons. One, India is only the fourth country to acquire such a specialized and modern capability. Two, entire effort is indigenous. India stands tall as a space power. It will make India stronger, even more secure, and will further peace and harmony. This tweet received 35,000 retweets and 123,000 likes. This was also a big deal because an intercept in space creates a lot of debris that stays in orbit for a while, potentially increasing the risk of accidentally harming other satellites or spacecraft. To learn more about the test, I spoke with Ankit Panda, a senior editor at The Diplomat, a publication that covers Asia-Pacific affairs. He's also an adjunct senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. If you aren't following Ankit on Twitter, you should. He provides up-to-the-minute expert analysis on numerous nuclear and other defense topics. He's just a great resource. Ankit, thanks so much for being here. So let's start off with a broad look, if that's okay. There's been a lot of recent tension between India and Pakistan. And then after things at least somewhat subsided, this test happens, right? So do these two things relate? And even if they do or don't, can you explain exactly what happened? Sure. So I think there are some questions about whether this test, what India did on March 27th, was actually related or a result of the India-Pakistan escalation. I think that's still a question that needs resolution. But what did the Indians do? So at the end of January, India, the Indian Space Research Organization put up a satellite uh, known as Microsat-R. It was a 740-kilogram mass object in low-Earth orbit. Um, it was roughly passing over the Earth's surface at an altitude of about 300 kilometers, give or take. And then on March 27th, the Indian Prime Minister's office announces that Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister, who is going to be facing, uh, India's about to go into elections in just a matter of days. The elections go over five weeks, 900 million people vote. It's uh, really a crazy demonstration of what democracy can look like. But uh, Modi comes up and he announces to the entire country that India has destroyed a satellite, uh, one of its own satellites, in low Earth orbit. And the satellite he announced during that address was shot down at an altitude of about 300 kilometers. And immediately astronomers that I talked to were able to verify that the candidate target satellite was Microsat-R, the very same satellite that India had put up on January 25th. 
That test attempt wasn't the first time the Indians had tried to do this. There was an earlier test on February 12th where the interceptor itself failed. And you broke that story. That's right. I did break that story. I don't think it really is a huge story in the sense that using direct ascent kinetic interceptors, and I'll explain what that is, uh, to destroy any object at a significant altitude above the Earth's surface is a difficult task. And India didn't get it right on the first time, and that's fine. It took China a couple tries before its successful anti-satellite test in 2007. The important issue with anti-satellite testing is that it's very difficult. In fact, I would argue impossible to do it in a way that's guaranteed to be quote-unquote responsible, which is what India emphasized that it had done. We're starting to find out now that the debris that was generated after the interceptor kinetically collided with the satellite, that's how these weapons work. They use physical force to collide two objects together, destroying both of them. So in this case, the interceptor and the satellite both blow up effectively, and the components that result from that, the debris, a lot of that remains in orbit at that similar altitude. The smaller pieces decay very quickly and burn up in the atmosphere. But what we've seen with the Indian test is that several pieces of notable debris were propelled to higher altitudes, including to apogees, the highest point in the orbit, above the International Space Station, creating serious risks for peaceful civilian uses of space, unfortunately, which is something that India has actually developed a name for itself as a trailblazer. And the Indian Space Research Organization is unparalleled among civilian spacefaring organizations in the world for simply its cost effectiveness. So the fact that India conducted this anti-satellite test, which Modi used as a moment to declare the country a space superpower, is a little unfortunate in my opinion, because if anything had made India a space superpower, it was its civilian capabilities. Great. So you brought up a bunch of interesting points. So you you brought up China's anti-satellite tests in the 2000s. You brought up the space debris that India has caused, including that, you know, some is higher than, as you mentioned, the International Space Station. So when China did its test that you mentioned, the U.S. very strongly condemned it, said that it threatened the peaceful uses of space. Has that been the same this time with India? So as far as I can tell, there isn't a whole-of-government U.S. response to the Indian test. Like so many things, uh, the interagency process right now is not in a very strong place. And uh, what we've seen is Jim Bridenstine, the administrator of NASA, called the Indian test a terrible, terrible thing. He was very kind of unequivocal about this. He announced the fact that the debris that NASA was tracking, Strategic Command is tracking, actually was detected at altitudes uh, above the ISS. He noted that the probabilistic risk of a collision with the ISS had risen by 44%. That, of course, gets a little misinterpreted because the baseline risk of a collision in low Earth orbit is still fairly low, but a 44% increase is still unnecessary, right? The marginal benefit to India militarily of this technology is, in my view, quite limited. But the Pentagon came out with a separate set of statements, basically acknowledging that India is a strategic partner. Of course, there is a big geopolitical angle to the U.S.-India relationship in that over the past decade or so, Washington and New Delhi have been converging strategically over shared concerns about China's rise. So the reactions were quite different, but also we should talk about the ways in which the two tests were different, right? So China's 2007 test, the satellite that was shot down was the Fengyun-1C satellite. It had a mass that was very similar to the Indian satellite target. I believe it was 760 kilograms. But it was shot down at a much higher altitude, over 800 kilometers above the Earth's surface. And what that meant is that the trackable debris from that test, some of that is still up there, and it's going to remain there for decades. That's right. I didn't misspeak. Decades. It's going to take a really long time for that to decay in orbit. The Indian test, the altitude in particular, is a lot closer to the test the United States conducted in 2008. So here's the thing. We criticized the Chinese test in 2007, but... 
that was a moment for the United States to establish itself as a leader, to establish some kind of norms against kinetic testing, against orbital targets. We did the opposite. The Bush administration, a year later, decided that it needed to demonstrate that the United States could do this. It wasn't a test, but there was an American satellite that was decaying in orbit, USA-193. And in 2008, the U.S. Navy used a standard missile 3 Block 1 interceptor to shoot that satellite down or blow it up in orbit in, uh, at an altitude of about 240 kilometers. That generated debris. I think the, the most persistent debris from that test lasted for about two years. It's hard to predict exactly how the kinetic events will play out and where these debris chunks will end up. So with the Indian test, we're kind of seeing something similar, that we have debris that got propelled to higher altitudes that will take significantly longer to decay, potentially a few years. But neither the 2008 U.S. test or the Indian test come to the level of what China did in 2007 in terms of just sheer responsibility with debris. But like I said, that doesn't mean that they're responsible. So some analysts, you included, have made the point that this anti-satellite test may have been about more than just intercepting a satellite. I think for a lot of people, that can be a bit difficult to comprehend. So can you explain what other motivations might be at play? Frankly, I think the other motivation here and the one that's more militarily useful for India and what I think is actually driving a lot of the development of this kind of technology, which is the base technology being direct ascent, hit-to-kill kinetic interceptors, is their application in ballistic missile defense. So India's ballistic missile defense program started in 1999, the very same year actually the United States kicked off the ground-based mid-course defense system here to protect the homeland from intercontinental range threats. And over the years, India's come a long way. So the anti-satellite test was uh, another way to think about it is that it's the highest altitude exo-atmospheric demonstration of a kinetic intercept by India ever. And if you're Pakistan, you look at that. And you realize that the fundamental technologies that are involved in destroying a satellite in low Earth orbit and destroying, let's say, a Shaheen-3 medium-range ballistic missile's re-entry vehicle at a similar altitude aren't all that different. And you begin to see that India is expanding the kinds of options that it might have to deal with your nuclear forces. What makes this more concerning is that there is a growing body of scholarship. And here I'll cite my colleagues and friends, uh, Vipin Narang and Chris Clary have a really good article out in the latest issue. Uh, I think it's the spring 2019 issue of International Security, cataloging uh, years of statements by senior Indian officials that refuse to accept vulnerability to Pakistan's nuclear weapons. And while India has a no first use nuclear posture, we also have a long list of statements by former and serving Indian officials implying that they would be open to considering counterforce options against Pakistan, counterforce being targeting Pakistan's nuclear forces and depriving Pakistan of the ability to threaten India with its nuclear forces in a crisis. And that's tempting for Indian leaders because Pakistan's developed low yield nuclear weapons to use early in a crisis effectively hamstringing India's conventional options. And in the meantime, Pakistan has been using subconventional terror groups as a tool of statecraft. So effectively, what that's meant is India is being bled by a thousand cuts and really doesn't have a very good response to that. So nuclear counterforce in India is one way to deal with that problem. And what role does ballistic missile defense play in counterforce? One of the most misleading things about ballistic missile defense is that it's defensive. It is a defensive system. Uh, in, the, in the U.S., uh, people, advocates will often refer to it as a shield designed to protect the country, but it's less that, and it's more a way to destroy your adversaries incoming warheads before they hit your territory. And in that sense, these are offensive tools. So what India might have to do with this is that in a counterforce scenario where, let's say, the Indian Air Force uh, detects that Pakistan has deployed low-yield nuclear weapons early in a crisis, will be tempted 
to destroy the Nasser, which is the Pakistan's 60-kilometer, uh, 70-kilometer uh, range sub-kiloton uh, nuclear weapon. Um, and let's say that India doesn't get everything because counterforce is very difficult. That's why the United States and the Soviet Union had the kinds of arms buildup that they did during the Cold War. You have to have great intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance to know where all of your adversaries' weapons are to destroy them. And as we just learned during the February crisis, the Indian Air Force can miss its targets occasionally. So... This is where ballistic missile defense comes in, is that in that it helps India think more seriously about this kind of a strategy because ballistic missile defense, as it becomes more capable, can sweep up the residuals. So if Pakistan is able to have any of its ballistic missiles survive and is able to launch them against India, India now has more capable kinetic interceptors capable of destroying those warheads. So that's destabilizing for a variety of reasons, because if you're Pakistan, the way to deal with this problem is to build out your nuclear forces, right? You build more nuclear weapons. You build more forms of nuclear delivery. You move your nuclear weapons to sea, which the Pakistanis have already started doing over the past few years. And all of that, I think, leads South Asia to a much more dangerous place in general. It's interesting because during the last episode we had, which was actually on the ground-based mid-course defense system, or GMD, we talked about that offense-defense relationship that you alluded to. And I think I described it in a way as one side will build a bunch of interceptors, the other side builds a bunch of missiles to overwhelm the interceptors, then the other side responds with more interceptors, and it's sort of this endless destabilizing cycle. Do you think we're seeing what happened with the U.S. and Soviet Union during the Cold War on more of like a micro scale today between India and Pakistan? Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamental logic behind arms racing and the relationship between ballistic missile defense and nuclear force structure is basically still the same. Um, and that's been the main cause of concern for Pakistan. Um, one of the differences is that Pakistan is incredibly fiscally constrained. Uh, it's not a major difference. The Soviet Union had its own fiscal constraints, obviously, with uh, nuclear arms builds up during the Cold War. Um, and of course, the United States, you know, we spend a lot of money on weapons that we frankly might not need. So uh, this is honestly something for these countries to consider. For Pakistan, what I described in dealing with this problem uh, might not be available to Pakistan, right? They don't have unlimited resources or fissile material to build out a massive nuclear arsenal, let's say, bigger than China's, which has about, you know, 300 nuclear warheads. So another option for Pakistan then would be to simply reallocate the kind of resources that it has and move towards a greater deployment of, let's say, battlefield nuclear weapons, develop things like nuclear artillery. Uh, that would be, of course, come with a whole range of other problems in that nuclear artillery shells would be more prone to theft by radical extremist groups in the country, which are unfortunately a real threat. Uh, we've, we've seen attacks on Pakistani naval bases, and now Pakistan's developing a nuclear-armed submarine-launched cruise missile. So there are a lot of commonalities between what we saw between the United States and the Soviet Union, but there is undoubtedly a unique South Asian flavor to uh, some of these problems too. Okay, last question. Some analysts have noted that the timing of this test was very interesting, right? Or problematic, I suppose, depending on who you ask, because it happened so close to a major Indian election. In fact, some in India have actually accused the prime minister of violating rules in making such an announcement. So can you talk a little bit about that? I think for a lot of uh, folks who don't follow uh, Indian politics or the India-Pakistan situation strategically, they may not really know what's going on there. So yeah, India has this thing called the model code of conduct. So imagine that as effectively a set of rules that prohibits the serving government from making any kind of populist kind of handout or major economic or social policy decisions right before an election, right? So the Modi government can't announce that, hey, we're going to give 
every farmer in the country 100 bucks because that would clearly tilt the scales in an election and disadvantage the opposition. So that's why that exists. National security is exempted from that, technically. And the Modi government used that rationalization to make this announcement. And what happened was that there actually was an investigation by the Indian Election Commission, and they actually absolved Modi uh, two days later. So the opposition uh, was, wasn't too happy about that. But effectively, there wasn't a technical violation. Uh, there is a separate question about whether this needed to be a national announcement. A lot of kind of breathless commentators in the Indian media sphere um, compared what India did by shooting down this satellite uh, or shooting up the satellite. I don't like to say shooting down because it's misleading because nothing actually comes down. It just stays up there. But anyways, a lot of commentators compared it to India's nuclear tests in 1998. And I think that's a little hyperbolic. Uh, it's an important capability. Did it need to be announced by the prime minister a few weeks before the election? Probably not, in my view. But the interesting thing here is that, you know, if that February test had succeeded, the, the one that did fail, Modi would have made this announcement. He might have made this announcement back then. We can't say with certainty. We don't have the counterfactual. But if he'd made that announcement back then, he wouldn't have been under scrutiny for violating this model code of conduct. It would have been early enough that the election dates wouldn't have been yet announced. So there is this political angle to this. As far as what effect will it have on the elections itself, I think the bigger national security thing that might be at the top of Indian voters' minds is the the recent crisis with Pakistan, uh, which was a lot more significant. And Modi, uh, despite how he was perceived handing, handling that overseas, where Indian escalation was something that a lot of people worried about. I think domestically, he actually has a pretty decent reputation from the management of that crisis. So the anti-satellite test, if it does anything, I think what it does is it injects the Indian national security discussion with, with a bit of techno-strategic optimism, right? Because India India had a pilot shot down in a MiG-21 bison, right? That's a really old aircraft. It kind of emphasized the, the decrepit state of the Indian Air Force, and now you have this big moment of national prestige uh, that Modi really talked up in the speech, right? The whole speech was about how India joined this exclusive club of countries and is now a space superpower. So it really injects the national dialogue with this idea that Modi stewarded India to this place where now it can shoot satellites up. But India is like any other place, and most voters are going to be voting uh, with their pocketbooks and the economy in mind. So national security is likely to remain marginal overall. If you enjoyed this episode of Nukes of Hazard, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments, you can shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. Thanks so much for listening.